This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. So far in this podcast, we've found that murder comes in all forms. There are female killers, killer couples, and kids who kill. We've also seen that murder doesn't take a holiday or a vacation. Finally, even the rich and famous aren't exempt from murder. In this series, Millionaire Murders, all share stories of wealthy people who were targeted for their money. Some fell victim to greed, revenge, or even notoriety. In our first chapter, you'll learn how a privileged child of a self-made millionaire decided he wanted his family fortune for himself and took matters into his own hands. This is Chapter 1, Spoiled Son, Dana Ewell. Dale Ewell was born into a farming family during the Great Depression. One of five children born to Austin and Mary Ewell, he knew the value of hard work from an early age. Everyone in the family worked on the 200-acre farm that yielded oats, soybeans, corn, wheat, and even cattle and hogs. Dale's older sister, Betty, later would recall that there was always enough to eat, if not much money. Dale Yule would later be compared with his father, Austin. Words like hardworking, ambitious, competitive, and cutthroat would be used to describe the character of both men. Having lived through hard times, Austin Yule would teach his son to see to himself and his family first. The lesson Dale learned from him was, take what's yours and let others fend for themselves. While tending the fields and livestock, Dale Yule would be fascinated by airplanes he'd see flying overhead. It signified freedom and money to him. An airplane could take you anywhere you wished, but you couldn't fly unless you could afford to. With this in mind, Dale entered Miami University of Ohio in 1950 at the age of 18 to study aeronautical engineering. After graduating in 1954, he joined the Air Force where he learned to fly. It was everything he dreamed it would be. He loved flying and being around airplanes, and he was able to travel to many places. In 1957, he traveled to Tucson, Arizona, where he met Glee Mitchell, a pretty co-ed who was attending the University of Arizona. Glee was one of three daughters from a wealthy family who owned property and oil leases in five states. She and her sisters helped her mother, also named Glee, manage the properties. When Glee graduated college in 1959, she took a job with the Central Intelligence Agency. She became a translator and was sent to work in Argentina. She spent two years with the CIA before resigning to return to the U.S. in 1961 to marry Dale Ewell. After leaving the Air Force, Dale took a job with Douglas Aircraft as an engineer. He loved being in the aviation industry, but soon discovered he preferred flying airplanes to working on them. He found a job in Fresno, located in Central California, selling Cessna airplanes to farmers. Using both his knowledge of farming, as well as his expertise in aviation, he was able to talk local farmers into purchasing the small, piston-powered aircraft Cessna specialized in. It was a booming economy for farmers, and Dale was able to appeal to their egos, telling them it was a sign of prestige to own an aircraft, as well as a way to gain freedom. They could hop into their plane and take a short trip to the coast, or San Francisco, or the beaches of Southern California. 
he quickly began to rack up commissions upwards of $10,000 per sale. But in 1965, Dale Ewell left his sales position with Cessna to become a salesperson for Frank Lamb Aviation, selling Piper airplanes. Dale, ever ambitious, was determined to become a wealthy man. And while it is unknown why he made the switch, it is speculated that he most likely was offered a bigger commission with his new firm. By this time, Del Ewell's three brothers had also located to the Fresno area. Two had gone into the agricultural business, while the youngest, Ben, entered law school. On May 1, 1967, Dale and Glee's first child, Tiffany Ann, was born. A little over three years later, they had a son. Dana James was born on June 28, 1971. Things were going well for the Ewell family. They had purchased a nice home in an upper-middle-class neighborhood of Fresno. Nice, but not pretentious. The house on Park Circle Drive suited Dale and Glee Ewell well. It was a fashionable neighborhood, but not ostentatious. They were not overly materialistic or showy with the money they had. Later, they could have afforded to live anywhere, on the coast, in a mansion, or anywhere they liked, but they preferred to live in Fresno among the ranchers, business owners, and other community members. While Glee came from money and Dale did not, Neither had grown up with silver spoons in their mouths, and no matter what their circumstances were, they had learned to work and earn their own way. In 1971, Dale's employer, Frank Lamb, was arrested and charged with drug smuggling. Federal authorities accused him of smuggling in marijuana from Mexico in his airplanes. He was found guilty in a federal court and sent to prison. Worried about who Lamb might have had dealings with, Dale Ewell decided he needed some protection, just in case. That year, he purchased a 9mm Browning automatic, as well as two boxes of 9mm ammunition. The gun and the ammunition were kept in the master bedroom closet, where they would remain for two decades. After Lamb was imprisoned, representatives from the Piper Corporation contacted Dale. Would he be interested in taking over the franchise, they asked him? He jumped at the offer. Now he wouldn't just be a salesperson, but would become an aircraft dealer he renamed the operation Western Piper Sales. Beyond selling aircraft, they also serviced the planes. Before long, Western Piper Sales employed a dozen people, and $30,000 commissions were common. Life was good for the Ewells. Dale Ewell owned a thriving business and was now the wealthy man he'd always dreamed of being. Glee, along with being a devoted mother to her two children, was also active in the community. She had been involved with the local children's hospital and Civil Service Commission, and served on the county grand jury. She became a member of the Judicial Nominees Evaluation Committee and was appointed to the State Bar Board of Governors as a public member. They could never have imagined what the future would hold for them, a cold and callous act that would be perpetrated upon them by none other than one of their own children. Easter weekend, 1992. Dale and Glee Ewell were spending the holiday weekend at their beach house at Pajaro Dunes, located on the coast of Monterey Bay. Glee and her daughter Tiffany had driven together from Fresno, while Dale flew to the coast. Dale had always harbored a fear that he and Glee would be in an accident together and leave their children orphans, so they sometimes traveled separately. The only bigger fear he had was that the whole family would perish together. But Dana, their son, now 21, was a student at Santa Clara University, 
three hours north by car, and was driving down from the campus to meet his family at the beach house. Tiffany, 24, a graduate student at Fresno State University, was living at home. On Easter Sunday, April 19th, Dale and Dana played tennis together in the morning. The family then had lunch together and took a walk on the beach. They all began to leave the beach house that afternoon. Dana left in his car around 2.30 p.m. From there, he drove an hour northeast to the home of his girlfriend, Monica Zent, who lived in Morgan Hill. Glee and Tiffany drove the three hours from the coast to their Fresno home, arriving sometime after 5 p.m. Dale flew back, arriving at the Fresno Air Terminal around 3.30. He stopped at his office at Western Piper Sales, calling his business manager, Marlene Reed, about 4 p.m. Sometime that evening, he arrived at his home at 5663 East Park Circle Drive. Dana Ewell spent most of the evening with his girlfriend and her family in Morgan Hill. Ewell called his home in Fresno that evening, but there was no answer. Later that night, he and Monica returned to school in Santa Clara. On Monday, Dana Ewell talked to John Zent, Monica's father, who happened to be an FBI agent, as well as to Marlene Reed, his father's business manager. He stated his concern to both of them that he had been unable to reach his family by phone. Reed told him to call the Ewell's neighbors in Fresno and ask them to check on them. However, he did not do so until Tuesday morning. This time, Reed insisted, after Dale Ewell failed to show up for work again. The neighbor went to the Ewell's home, and at about the same time, their housekeeper arrived. The first thing they saw was the body of Tiffany, lying face down on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. They immediately backed out of the house and called the police. Just after 9 a.m., the police arrived. They first found the body of Tiffany Ewell in the kitchen. She had been shot once in the back of the head. Dale Ewell's body was then found lying face down in the hallway. He had been shot once in the back of the neck. Glee Ewell was found, also dead, lying partially on her back and partially on her left side in the home's office. She had been shot four times, including one shot just below the eye. The bullet had exited the back of her head. Because of the condition of the bodies, rigor mortis had already set in and lividity was present. The investigators theorized that they had all been shot shortly after arriving home on Sunday evening. The women had arrived first and had probably been surprised as they walked in. They believed Tiffany had been shot first and hadn't seen her killer. But it was theorized that Glee had tried to flee after being wounded in the hallway. She made it as far as the office, where she was shot several more times before falling dead. Dale, arriving after his wife and daughter, was killed last as he entered the home. He fell where he was first shot. Police searched the house and didn't find any evidence of forced entry. The home had a burglar alarm that was not set and had not been tripped. The housekeeper verified that the alarm was always set when the family was away. The house had been ransacked. Almost every room had items thrown around and drawers and cabinets rifled through. Strangely, nothing of note had been taken, except one thing. The 9mm Browning pistol Dale had purchased in 1971 was missing. A box of 9mm Winchester cartridges was found in the master bedroom, with some of the bullets missing. Later, it would be determined that the Ewells had been shot with a 9mm weapon, and tool marks would prove that the bullets recovered at the crime scene were most likely from the box of cartridges found in the bedroom. 
investigators quickly concluded that the crime scene was staged to look like a robbery gone wrong. Nothing had been taken, there was no forced entry, and someone had to know the alarm code in order to gain access. The family, they believed, was targeted for some reason, and they began to investigate that theory. It was rumored at first that perhaps enemies of Frank Lamb had targeted Dale and his family. But the only thing to be gained from that would be revenge, and no one came forward to take responsibility. Some even surmised that Glee's work with the CIA 30 years earlier could have played a role. But her position was simply as a translator. Nothing of note was found to point to this theory. The only surviving member of the family, Dana Ewell, arrived after hearing about the murder of his family. He flew to Fresno, arriving that afternoon. He was summoned to talk with the investigators at the Fresno County Sheriff's Homicide Unit. Detective John Souza first noticed that Dana Ewell showed no sorrow or emotion about the death of his family members. He seemed very matter-of-fact and businesslike for someone who had just lost his entire family. The homicide team decided to dig into Dana Ewell's background. What was discovered was that Dana Ewell had a reputation as someone who was all about the Benjamins. He liked to flash cash around to his peers, even passing out $100 bills to classmates while still in high school. He was given a large allowance, around $500 per month, during that time, a significant amount of cash for a teen. He would tell classmates that he was going to be a millionaire or even a billionaire. He listed his idols as Donald Trump and the Billionaire Boys Club. The Billionaire Boys Club was an investment and social club founded by 23-year-old Joe Hunt in the early 1980s. He promised other young men with money ridiculous returns on their investments, but in actuality, he was running a Ponzi scheme, using the money from his investors to pay for lavish lifestyles for him and his cohorts. When he, in turn, was scammed by a con artist, Ron Levin, he turned to murder. He was tried and convicted of Levin's murder in 1984 and sentenced to life without parole. Dana Ewell had a high IQ and was very competitive. He needed to be the best. He couldn't just get an A in class. He needed to earn the A with the highest score. His ultra-competitive nature made it difficult to make and keep friends. Some would say in this way, he took after his father. But unlike his father, Dana was spoiled and felt entitled to live the good life. While the family lived somewhat modestly, it was well known that Dale Ewell was a millionaire. Dana decided he should live the life of a millionaire as well. He entered as a freshman at Santa Clara University, a private Catholic college in Silicon Valley, in 1989. Santa Clara University is known as a campus filled with children of the wealthy and privileged, although it is also populated by scholarship recipients and students who work their way through college with the help of financial aid packages. I was one such student, working my way through college and earning my master's degree in counseling at Santa Clara, so I'm well aware that the college boasts one of the most beautiful campuses in the country and is consistently rated one of the top private colleges in the United States. Dana Ewell was accepted into the honors program in finance and quickly set about to earn the reputation as a privileged rich kid. Unlike most students at SEU who attend classes in board shorts and flip-flops, Ewell wore Armani suits to class. He drove a flashy gold Mercedes-Benz around campus. Although Ewell was bright, he liked to find shortcuts to actually working for his grades. In his sophomore year, he plagiarized a paper for a business ethics class of all things. He was discovered and received an F from the professor. 
Although today, if you plagiarize in most colleges, you will not only receive a failing grade, but will most likely be kicked out of school. Ewell didn't let the matter drop. Instead, he wrote a six-page letter to the professor pleading his case. Instead of making his teacher sympathetic, the professor found it somewhat disturbing. In the letter, Ewell wrote, I have all sorts of strange thoughts lately. I see movies about serial killers, about highly immoral men, and what psychologically stressed people do. I don't want to do anything else wrong. Detectives also heard stories about Dana Ewell's tendency to lie about anything and everything. His uncles would recount tales of a very young Dana lying about everything from where he was born to lies as brazen as being a victim of child abuse. Anything that earned him attention was fair game to him. While a sophomore at SCU, a writer for the school yearbook was given the task of finding an interesting undergrad to feature in the annual. Dana Ewell stood out with his suits and silk ties and good looks, so she decided to interview him. He told her a completely fabricated story about how he was a self-made millionaire. He said he'd become a stockbroker at the age of 18 and was now the current owner of a company that earned $2.7 million per year. Of course, it was his father that owned the multi-million dollar business. The profile was published in the yearbook, but unfortunately for Dana, the story of the young millionaire was picked up by the San Jose Mercury News. The story then got back to his father, who was incensed that his son had lied so blatantly and claimed his hard-earned successes as his own. Dale angrily confronted his son, but did what he could to quash the story. As he had in the past, Dale would clean up the messes his son made in order to avoid gossip. When Dana had wrecked his Mercedes, Dale bought him another car identical to the first. In this way, he could avoid people asking questions about what had happened to his son's car. Detectives also heard from Dale Ewell's brothers. They immediately suspected their nephew of being involved in the murders. They quickly sought an injunction to stop Dana Ewell from having access to the family fortune, determined to be around $8 million. One of Ewell's uncles had obtained a copy of the will right after the death of his brother. He wanted to find out what Dale and Glee's final wishes were in regards to their burial. When he told Dana there were no burial instructions written in the will, Dana responded, Okay, but what about the money? Detectives were on hand at the funeral and again noticed a lack of emotion on the part of Dana Ewell. When Dale and Glee Ewell's will was read, it stipulated that their assets at their death would be distributed equally between their daughter Tiffany and their son Dana. Of course, now that Dana was the sole surviving child, he was also the sole beneficiary. But Dale Ewell, a man who was nothing if not smart with money, had left instructions that half of the principal would be distributed to Dana when he reached age 30, with the other half to be distributed at age 35. Dana finally showed some emotion when this news was revealed to him. He was furious. Slamming his hand down on the desk, he raged, Why would my father do that to me? Detectives and family members of the Yule family alike had their suspicions about Dana Yule, but he had an airtight alibi. He'd been in Morgan Hill with his girlfriend and her family on the evening of the murders. And John Zent, his girlfriend's father, happened to be an FBI agent. He vouched for Ewell's whereabouts at the critical time in question. Investigators could now only continue to dig and keep watch over young Dana Ewell. 
Ewell first moved out of his family home on East Park Circle Drive and in with one of his uncles. Soon after, he told Michael Dowling, the estate's executor, that he was living with a friend in the neighborhood. But within a month of the murders, he gave a friend, Michael Poindexter, a tour of the house. Poindexter told detectives that it was clear that Ewell was living in the house and that he'd done nothing to clean up the crime scene. The blood of his mother, father, and sister still stained the floors and carpets. He saw bullet holes and blood spatter in the hallway, along with what he thought might be brain matter. He was horrified. Ewell, however, seemed to not even register the gory scene. Although he couldn't touch the bulk of the inheritance for almost nine years, Dana had immediate access to almost $800,000 in assets, including over $300,000, which was not part of the probate estate, $100,000 in assets that belonged to Tiffany, and $375,000 in certificates of deposit. He also received other effects belonging to the family, worth about $65,000, and his Mercedes. Ewell requested of the estate's executor that he be allowed to run Western Piper Sales, but that request was denied. Instead, he was hired as vice president of the company and received a salary, for no work, of $2,000 per month. Detectives were keeping an eye on the financial records during this time, and they revealed that between April 1992 and March 1995, Dana withdrew a total of $124,000 in unaccounted cash from various accounts. Most of the withdrawals were made in cash in $150 bills. Investigators knew that Dana had a motive to want his family dead. He was obsessed with becoming rich, and he stood to inherit the entirety of his parents' estate with his family gone. He would have known exactly how much his parents were worth, as he had recently typed a statement of net worth for Dale two weeks before the murders. Investigators also noted that he shed no tears for his murdered family and immediately went about spending as much of the family fortune as he could get his hands on. While investigators believed he was most likely responsible for the murders, they knew that they had to find out who the trigger man was. It definitely wasn't Dana, as he was over an hour away with his girlfriend and her family, who swore he'd been nowhere near Fresno on the date in question. They had to keep digging. The investigators visited Santa Clara University to talk to teachers, administrators, and students about Dana Ewell. One name kept popping up, Joel Radisich. Joel was said to be a close friend of Ewell's, and they were frequently seen together. Radisich attended Santa Clara University beginning in 1989 and had graduated in December of 1991. He'd since moved back to his hometown, located in the Los Angeles area. Detectives Souza and Burke traveled to Southern California on May 7, 1992, and contacted Radisich. They told him they were working a triple homicide case in which the parents of a Santa Clara student were the victims. He admitted to knowing Ewell and having heard about the murders. Radisich then asked why they wanted to talk to him. They told him they'd heard he was a friend of Ewell's and they were conducting a background investigation on his friend. Radisich then asked them, Are you going to arrest me? When the detectives told him no, he agreed to be interviewed. Radisich told investigators that he'd first met Ewell in the fall of 1990 at Santa Clara University. They were living in the same dorm. He said they would sometimes hang out together at school, but their friendship didn't extend much beyond that. He'd been to Ewell's home in Fresno once in the spring of 1991 and had met Dale and Glee Ewell. 
He'd also spent a couple of days with the Yules at their beach house. He'd last seen Yule in the spring quarter of 1991 and claimed he had not been to Fresno since his graduation from college in December. They asked him about his whereabouts on Easter Sunday, 1992. He said he'd been at Hamrick's Paint and Body Shop in Los Angeles. Investigators continued to track the movements of both Dana Yule and Joel Radisich. In early June 1992, Radisich was seen at the home on Park Circle Drive in Fresno when Yule was not present. It was reported that he seemed to be living there and had his clothing in the master bedroom. A concentrated surveillance effort began on Dana Yule and Joel Radisich on June 25, 1992, and continued off and on for the next three years. It was first determined that Radisich was indeed living at the Ewell home, and Dana also lived there part of the time. The housekeeper reported that Radisich occupied the master bedroom, while Dana continued to sleep in the same bedroom he'd always occupied in the house. Both men kept guns by their bedsides. They went several places together in the area in Ewell's Mercedes, or one of the other family vehicles. They visited several banks together, as well as the office of Michael Dowling, the estate's executor, Western Piper Sales, and other properties owned by the Ewell's estate. Michael Dowling had given Dana Ewell office space in his building to conduct estate business. He also had a phone line there to make business calls. Dana visited the office almost every day between May and July of 1992, and several calls were placed to Radisich's mother, brother, and friends in the Southern California area, as well as to Hamrick's paint and body shop. It was also discovered that both Ewell and Radisich were taking helicopter flying lessons. Ewell had paid for both men's lessons with a check for $16,377. The flight school also received cash payments from Radisich of $3,400. At this time, Radisich had no obvious means of employment. His mother would later tell investigators that after his graduation, her son came home to live with her and she would sometimes pay him for doing small construction projects around the house. She would also deposit small amounts of money into his bank account, but other than that, she was unaware of any other income he had earned. Radisich took his last flight lesson in November of 1992. At that time, he told the flight school he was moving back to Los Angeles and would need a refund of the balance he had paid. They issued him a check in his name, which was mailed to the Park Circle address. It was endorsed by both Radisich and Ewell and deposited in one of Ewell's bank accounts. And about those bank accounts? Financial records would show that Dana Ewell had over 25 different accounts in 14 different banks. Upon the death of his family, Dana also became executor of his grandmother's estate. Glee's mother, also named Glee, was 93 years old and living in a rest home. She'd had a trust account worth over $400,000, Dana began making withdrawals from those accounts as well and moving money around to various other banks. In three years' time, his grandmother's account would dwindle down to only $2,000. Records would show that payments were made in cash and checks to both Dana Ewell, Joel Radisich, and Dana's girlfriend, Monica Zent, for tens of thousands of dollars. Monica had graduated from Santa Clara University and enrolled in law school at the University of San Diego. A tuition check for over $17,000 was made to UC San Diego. Additional flying lessons for Radisich were paid for from the accounts to the tune of over $11,000, and Dana would eventually spend approximately $200,000 for lawyers. Investigators would report 
that over 40000 in cash and bank deposits went to Dana's girlfriend. Investigators were tailing Dana Ewell near his college, his home in Fresno, and parts in between. They were watching Joel Radisich closely as well. In the early 1990s, pagers and payphones were still used liberally, this being before cell phones were commonly available. Dana early on realized that the investigators were suspicious of him and refused to speak with them further. While at first he tried to play the role of the concerned son, putting up half of a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killers, he now became belligerent and cocky with investigators. The detectives would report that he would sometimes use counter-surveillance driving techniques to lose them as they followed his car. In November 1992, Dana Ewell arrived at the sheriff's office to retrieve a gun that had been removed from the residence during the investigation. Detectives asked him about Joel Radisich, saying they had some concerns about him and wanted to speak with him. Ewell then told them, I'm out of here. I got what I want. Then he left. Investigators looked to others to get information on Joel Radisich. They found a college classmate, Thomas Duong, who told him that Radisich had books mailed to his address that he'd ordered for himself. This was in the summer of 1991. Some of the books were how-to type books that taught how to build sound suppressors for guns, among other things. Radisich also asked Duong if he knew anyone who had a gun for sale. He told him he wanted to purchase something along the lines of an AK-47, but did not want to go to a gun shop. During early 1993, into the spring of that year, Joel Radisich was under surveillance in Southern California. Officers learned that he frequently used payphones, most often one located at the 7-Eleven convenience store located at Satakoy and Fallbrook in Canoga Park, not far from his mother's home. Undercover officers would pretend to use the phone next to him to overhear his conversations. They could tell he would often page someone to call the payphone. In April, they obtained telephone records in conjunction with their surveillance operation. Radisich had used the payphone at the 7-Eleven to make phone calls to Dana Ewell's college dorm phone. Several minutes after the page, he called the payphone at a Shell gas station on the Alameda in Santa Clara, just down the block from the college. An officer placed himself near Radisich during the 30-minute phone call and overheard him asking the person at the other end if they were getting any heat yet. He also spoke about obtaining a lawyer and said, I didn't tell them anything. Later that day, Radisich repeated the process of using the same phone to make a call to Ewell and then call the Shell Station payphone. This time, another officer was placed near him and attempted to record the conversation. Radisich was overheard to say that something was going to blow up and that there was going to be a news blitz. He also said that he did not want stock options and made a statement about wanting or needing the quarter million that he'd been expecting. On April 5th, several calls were placed by Dana Ewell from his dormitory to an attorney. Three days later, Radisich paid Fresno attorney E. Terrence Wolf $3,000 for attorney services. Soon after, Joel Radisich was seen driving in Fresno and arriving at the Park Circle Drive home. They noticed that his hair had been cut much shorter and was now dyed dark black. He then drove to Santa Clara, where he met up with Dana, and then drove off in Dana's Mercedes. On April 16th, a call was made from the Canoga Park 7-Eleven. This call was to the pager of a young man named Ernest Jack Ponce. This was the first time Ponce's name would come up in the investigation, 
and later he would become a key witness in the case. Now Detective Souza served a search warrant on the paging company where Radisich had purchased his service. With this warrant, he was able to obtain a duplicate or clone pager that allowed him to receive duplicates of the pages Radisich was receiving. He was able to intercept pages received from the San Jose Jet Center to Radisich. The Jet Center was not far from Santa Clara University. Soon after, Radisich returned to the paging company and said he was concerned that someone else might be receiving his pages. He asked if police had been by inquiring about him. He was told no. He then requested a new account be opened with the name Mike Smith and requested a new pager number. He was given one. Detective Souza then obtained a new search warrant and was able to have the new pager's messages also transferred to him. He continued to intercept pages to Radisich from the San Jose Jet Center, as well as various telephones in Santa Clara. Yule was also being surveilled on his end. He was seen making phone calls from the San Jose Jet Center. On May 12, 1993, two detectives, Curtis and Osborne, were on campus in Santa Clara to confirm Yule's class schedule. Yule noticed them and began to follow them in a very obvious way. Yule was acting as if this was all a game, and his cocky attitude made it plain that he didn't think much of their investigation. As a matter of fact, soon after the murders, Yule said to a friend about the investigators, they will never solve this case. They're a bunch of dummies. That evening, two detectives and a campus safety officer knocked on Yule's dorm room door to speak to him. When they arrived, he opened the door. His girlfriend, Monica Zent, was in the room. The detective opened by telling Yule he might have information about who'd killed his family. Yule said he didn't want to speak to them. The detective reiterated that he had information in regard to his parents' murder. Yule said it was not a good time to be bothering him. They asked him if he wasn't interested in finding out who killed his parents. He said he was, but he needed to call his attorney first. He then asked the detective if they had enjoyed visiting the campus making reference to the fact that he had spotted them earlier in the day. What a cocky bastard. Curtis said yes, he had. Yule then told him he'd made a report to the Santa Clara police against the detectives for following him. At this, I can only imagine the detective thinking, whoop de friggin do Curtis then told Yule to give him a call if he became interested in finding out who killed his parents. Yule then repeated that this was not the appropriate time or place for this conversation. How would you like it if someone came banging on your door at 11 o'clock at night, he complained. The detective then pointed out that it was only 8 p.m. Ooh, burn. Curtis then said that cops made calls like this all the time and that victims' family members generally wanted the information about who was responsible for crimes against their loved ones. Yule began to shut the door. As a parting shot, Curtis said, By the way, just so you know, the information we have leads us to believe that Joel Radisich is responsible for killing your family. The detective reported that all the blood seemed to drain from Ewell's face at that moment. In seconds, he collected himself, closing the door and saying it was too late in the evening to be discussing this matter. Was Ewell still convinced that the detectives had no idea who killed his parents and would never solve the case like he told his friend? Did he think he'd been that careful and clever that they'd never find out his involvement? Or was he just trying to stall for time? or in denial. A last thought I had after reading about this incident was perhaps he just didn't want everything coming out in front of his girlfriend. Maybe that's why he was so adamant about not talking to them that evening when she was present. 
But even though Dana Yule kept repeating how late it was, etc., I mean, was he like in his jammies or something? Police observed him and Monica Zent leave the dorm about 15 minutes later. They drove in Yule's car to the campus public safety office, entered for a few minutes, and then left. Yule drove off the campus and entered the 880 freeway from the Alameda. Curtis followed him into the far left lane. As they got to the first exit, Yule quickly crossed two lanes of traffic and exited the freeway, losing the detective. Not much later, Sousa intercepted a page to Radisich that had been made from a phone at a business complex located at 1520 the Alameda, just down the street from the university. A detective was sent to that location and observed Yule hanging up the receiver on the payphone. His car was parked nearby with Monica Zent in the passenger seat. Detectives continued to build a case against Yule and Radisich. Again in early June, they intercepted a page from Radisich to Jack Ponce. They more than once heard him talking to someone and mentioning that three-shirt deal, which they interpreted to mean the triple homicide. Radisich seemed to be hiding out in an apartment in Reseda that was occupied by his brother Peter. Radisich would drive into the complex's garage and then wait for the all-clear signal before dashing up to the second-floor apartment, obviously worried about being watched. He also seemed to be in hiding while in the presence of Dana Ewell. They were seen together in September at the Fresno Air Terminal, where Ewell had a single-engine airplane. Radisich walked out towards the plane, and Ewell, seeing him, told him, I didn't tell you you could come out. Get back. Radisich then walked back to the cars and ducked down between them. Once he started the engine, Ewell waved to Radisich, who then ran to the plane and entered it. When it took off, only Ewell was visible. Radisich must have been crouching down in the small seat like a dork. Radisich was seen a couple of other times at the hangar with Ewell. Contact between the two men continued, however. They enrolled together in scuba diving lessons. Each gave the Park Circle Drive address as their own. They also took the classes together. In July 1994, Ewell began renting an apartment at the Broadcast Center Apartments in Los Angeles. The gas account was under the name Dan James, but a cashier's check made to the account bore the name Dana Ewell. On March 2, 1995, police were able to secure a search warrant for Joel Radisich's mother's home. They were looking for physical evidence that matched their theory that a 9mm weapon equipped with a noise suppressor, commonly called a silencer, had been used in the murders of the Ewell family. The unusual scratches found on the bearing surfaces of the six bullets recovered from the crime scene led the investigators to determine that all six bullets were fired from the same weapon. They also concluded that the weapon had a ported barrel, a barrel in which holes had been drilled. The holes would allow the gas which repels the bullets through the barrel to dissipate in the suppressor. They also believed that the suppressor was homemade. More on this in a minute. The firearms expert investigating the murders also determined that the weapon was not the browning that was missing from the home. He concluded that the weapon used was an AT9 manufactured by Feather Industries with a barrel made by Green Mountain Barrels. Now that's some specific information. That's crack detective work. The firearms expert, and I'll give you his name since he's such a smart cookie, Ellen Boudreau, did a recreation with an AT9 he obtained to try and prove his conclusions. Using various barrels until he determined which was the most likely one used, he constructed a suppressor out of PVC pipe, tennis balls, and steel wool, as shown in the book on how to make silencers that Radisich had purchased. 
and conducted test firings. He concluded that tennis ball particles, such as those found on Glee's clothes and in the carpet that had been under her body, would have been ejected had a bullet been fired through a sound suppressor made with tennis balls. Steel wool particles were also found on her clothing. The carpet near her body also contained particles of chromolybdenum steel, of light composition to drilled metal specimens from Green Mountain barrels. Wow, I should have paid more attention in chemistry class. That's brilliant. But the biggest and best piece of the puzzle would be once they recovered the gun barrel. This would help solve the case and identify the killer. But more about that coming up. On March 3, 1995, a search was conducted at Radisich's vehicle and his mother's home. Ellen Boudreau was on hand to search for the weapon and other evidence that could tie their suspect to the case. In the garage of Radisich's house, Boudreau found a box of drill bits, particle matter which included larger white particles that might match the PVC pipe, and smaller pieces that appeared to be steel wool. From his vehicle, the police seized a receipt in the name of Mike Johnson for a pager, and service beginning in February of 1995. They also served a search warrant the same day for the Park Circle residence. From there, they retrieved a box of latex gloves in the master bathroom, Radisich's passport, and maps and aircraft paperwork relating to a planned trip to Mexico the following month. But Ernest Jack Ponce was the person the investigators were most interested now in getting information out of. They had been watching his association with Joel Radisich since April 1993, one year after the murders. He had been interviewed by Detectives Souza and Curtis in October 1993 about his friendship with Radisich. Ponce only told them that he was a friend of Joel's brother, Peter. The detectives knew that Ponce had purchased a 9mm rifle and suspected he bought it for Radisich. He denied this. However, he did admit to having purchased a 9mm weapon, but did not reveal that it was an 189. After this interview, Ponce kept in contact with Radisich by paging him. These pages were also intercepted by detectives. During this time, Radisich unexpectedly showed up at Ponce's job and offered him $1,000 in cash. Ponce refused it, but Radisich insisted he take it. In February of the following year, Ponce admitted to detectives that he had purchased an 89. He said he'd bought it for himself and had not given it to his friend or loaned it to anyone. Even when the detectives told him they believed it had been used in the murders, but they didn't think that he was personally involved, he still denied knowing anything. Ponce's next contact with the police was on March 2, 1995, when they arrested him on three counts of murder. He was transported to Fresno the next day. After speaking to his father and the prosecutor, he decided to make a statement. He had become friends with Radisich, he said, when they'd attended high school together. Ponce had gone off to college at the University of California, Los Angeles, graduating in 1992. Afterwards, he lived with his mother in San Bernardino. He was also friends with Joel's brother, Peter. Ponce and Peter Radisich continued their friendship after Ponce returned from college. Joel, at this time, was away at college in Santa Clara. Ponce had always been interested in guns and had owned several over the years. Joel Radisich and Jack Ponce reconnected during the summer of 1991. They stole two motorcycles together, and Ponce also said he'd helped Radisich take parts from a car once. That same summer, Radisich told him that he was learning to make silencers for weapons and needed a gun with a barrel that protruded. Ponce gave him a Beretta 22 to use, 
and Radisich made a crude noise suppressor for it out of PVC pipe. He'd cut out tennis balls in the shape of a circle to use as a baffle. They fired the weapon with the suppressor on it a few times and then threw it away, as it didn't work well. The twenty-two was returned to Ponce. Also that summer, Radisich told him he was looking for a gun that he didn't have to register in his name. He wanted to experiment further with making silencers, he said. On March 1, 1992, Radisich went with Ponce to a gun show in Anaheim. Radisich decided he liked the AT-9 and wanted to purchase it. When the seller requested his identification for the sale, Radisich declined and didn't purchase the weapon. Afterwards, Radisich told Ponce that he could make money off finding him an AT-9. He specifically wanted that gun because it had an extended barrel that could be ported. He also said he needed it right away, but did not say why. He gave Ponce $1,500 and $100 bills, and on March 23rd, Ponce purchased an 89 at a Reseda gun shop for $437. Radisich paid Ponce $500 for making the purchase for him. After the necessary waiting period, the weapon was picked up on April 8th, 11 days before the murders. Radisich told him to report it stolen at a later date. Ponce did so about six months later. Ponce saw the weapon shortly after in Radisich's mother's garage. It now had a silencer made out of PVC pipe attached to it. He saw him fire the weapon into a block of wood. The silencer muffled the sound. Ponce believed he was planning to sell the weapon and asked him if he was going to make a lot of money off of it. Oh yeah, Radisich replied. Ponce denied ever being at the Park Circle Drive residence or even hearing about Ewell before the murders. The week after the murders, Radisich showed up at Ponce's condo, acting nervous and frantic. He said that something had gone wrong and that he needed to get away as far as possible. When Ponce asked him what was wrong, he told him, it has to do with the triple homicide and me. Ponce told him not to tell him anything more. Later, Ponce advised him to get a lawyer, still maintaining that he didn't know what Radisich's involvement actually was. Radisich said he couldn't do that, and Ponce began to think he might be more than accidentally involved in whatever had happened. Radisich, he claimed, said something to the effect of having to do with $8 million and quoted him as saying, we were going to assume the throne. The next day, Radisich said he needed to get rid of some things. Ponce called Joel's brother, Peter. Joel now told them he was concerned the weapon he purchased might have been involved in whatever had taken place. He handed them a backpack that held another pistol with an extended barrel welded onto it. Radisich said it wasn't a problem. It hadn't been used. Peter took it into the shop and broke off the barrel. Ponce told police that he didn't tell Peter the previous statements his brother had made to him because he didn't want him to get involved. The backpack also contained parts from the AT-9. The identification numbers had been drilled out, and it was taken apart. There were some cut-out tennis balls in the backpack as well as a pair of tennis shoes. The silencer he'd seen in the garage was also in it. Ponce and Peter began to drive around and dispose of the backpack's contents in various locations. Peter drove, and Ponce would get out and dump one thing or another. Peter kept getting paged by his wife, and after a while returned to his condo. The only thing left was the barrel. Ponce, knowing that a bullet that had been fired through an individual barrel could be identified, said he'd get rid of it. He ran across the street from Peter's condo to a vacant lot and shoved the barrel into the ground. He then met up with Radisich and told him that the items had been disposed of. He drove him to a motel 
and dropped him off before heading home. Radisich told him to keep an eye out in the papers about a homicide and told him the name was Ewell. Radisich soon called Ponce to say he didn't have enough money to stay in the motel. He later came to Ponce's condominium and began sleeping in his van. In late April, Radisich was still holed up in Ponce's van. On April 29, 1992, the Rodney King riots began in Los Angeles. It was at this time that Ponce says he and Radisich took a drive to Malibu, and while sitting by the beach, he finally asked him for the whole story. He told detectives that Radisich told him the following account. Radisich had shot three people with the 89 in order to split an $8 million inheritance. He said he'd been to Dana's home in Fresno before, and that he knew the family would be away that weekend. He also knew about what time they would return. He planned to arrive at the house several hours before they were expected to return and wait. He'd removed all of his body hair beforehand as a precaution, he said. He knew he would be there long enough that he might need to use the bathroom and didn't want to leave any hair behind that could identify him. He carried the gun inside the backpack. Once inside, he took the gun out and assembled it. He then laid out plastic sheets he'd also brought with him to lie on while he waited, again so as not to leave any hair or fiber evidence behind. He also wore latex rubber gloves. The mother and daughter arrived first. He was waiting in the laundry room, and the daughter walked past him. He shot her in the back of the head. She fell straight down. The mother must not have heard, he said, because she kept on talking as she approached. He shot her, and he believed she was the only one who possibly saw him. He'd had to shoot her multiple times. I wonder if she did see him, and of course that had to be horrifying. She knew this boy as a friend of her son's, who she'd had in her home not long before. I also wonder if she registered recognition of him, and that's why he panicked and shot her so many times. The firearms expert would write in his report that he believed the final shot had been fired as she was lying on the ground. Radisich was actually straddling her as he fired the last shot, his report stated. He then changed the clip in the weapon and put on another pair of latex gloves while he waited for Dale Ewell to arrive. When he did, he walked past the room where Radisich was waiting. He then stepped out and shot him. He said he tried to check their pulses to make sure they were dead, but found it difficult with the gloves on. He took the weapon from the master bedroom to throw off the police, he said, as well as $1,500 in cash he found in the home. He disassembled the weapon in the office and then took off the gloves. He thought he might have left one of the gloves behind, since he was wearing multiple pairs. That might have been his only mistake, he thought. He waited until it was dark, before he left the house. Ponce angrily criticized him several times during the story for using the weapon he had given him. Radisich apologized. Ponce then drove them back home. On the ride back, Radisich said, If there's a god, I'm fucked. After their interview with Ponce, the detectives returned him to the Los Angeles area, where he pointed out the various locations where the items had been dumped. He directed them to the vacant lot where the 89 barrel was recovered. Boudreaux, the firearms expert, then used it to determine that the barrel was the one that the bullets were fired through during the commission of the murders. Peter Radisich was also arrested and charged with three counts of murder. Both he and Ponce were given immunity in exchange for their testimony. Dana Yule and Joel Radisich were arrested and charged with the murders. The trial was long and complicated due to the complex trail of financial records, surveillance records of the relationship between Yule and Radisich, 
and the three-year-long investigation. Other things of note came out at the trial. Dana Ewell's uncles were convinced from the beginning that he was capable of having his family killed to inherit the money. They told of his scene at the reading of the will when he found he would have to wait a decade for his inheritance. They also told how he had purchased the cheapest casket available to bury his sister in and how he'd balked at adding a $35 vase to his family's headstone. The jury also heard how he drained his elderly grandmother's bank accounts to finance his lavish lifestyle. They heard about Ewell's history of lies to make himself look like a big shot, as well as his scams and outright theft. Ewell was able to skip lower-level finance classes in college after Professor believed his lies about running a multi-million dollar business as a teen. As a freshman at SCU, he obtained a card from the University of California system that identified him as a faculty member. He was then able to get free books from educational publishing companies, which he would then sell to his classmates. Several couches and chairs were stolen from Ewell's dorm lounge, and several students in the dorm believed that Ewell had masterminded the theft and his flunky, Joel Radisich, had carried it out. The prosecutor laid out the fact that Radisich could not have had access to the house without being given the alarm code by his friend Dana Ewell. The plan, they surmised, was that Joel Radisich would carry out the murders, and when Dana inherited the $8 million, he would be richly rewarded. When it was discovered that he would not be receiving the money as soon as he'd planned, they came up with a plan B. They would take flying lessons and prepare to leave as soon as they were able to parts unknown. But they didn't plan for the investigators to be so dogged in proving their case. They kept the heat on, which made Radisich panic and seek to dispose of the gun and other evidence, thereby bringing in more witnesses to their crime. Joel Radisich was the weak link. Without him it might have been possible for Ewell to get away with murder. The jury would later say they felt sorry for Radisich. He'd sealed his fate when he threw in his lot with Ewell. They felt that Ewell manipulated him and used him for his own gain. However, he was the one who pulled the trigger. Ewell and Radisich were tried together, and on May 27, 1998, after a five-month trial, they were found guilty of murder in the first degree of Dale, Glee, and Tiffany Ewell with three special circumstances, multiple murder, murder for financial gain, and murder while lying in wait. The sentencing phase was also lengthy. In the end, Radisich avoided the death penalty by two votes, Ewell by one. They both received three life sentences with no possibility for parole. Joel Radisich was sent to Mule Creek State Prison to serve out his life sentence. Ernest Jack Ponce went on to earn a law degree and become a member of the California State Bar in 2007. His practice is located in Fullerton, California. Monica Zent graduated from law school in San Diego and went on to found a successful law practice, Zent Law, in Silicon Valley. She did not testify at the trial and has never talked publicly about her boyfriend or what she may or may not have known about the murder of his family. She cut off contact with Dana Ewell after his arrest. Glee Mitchell, Dana's grandmother, passed away in her rest home in 1999. Dana Ewell never admitted any involvement in the murders. He was sent to Corcoran State Prison, which houses some of California's most notorious criminals. He appealed his case to the courts, but his appeals were continually denied. He has since exhausted all appeals. While still appealing his sentence, 
He claimed to have become a devout Christian, spending his time in prison attending Bible study and taking Bible college correspondence classes. The prosecutor who put him away wasn't buying it. Yule, he says, was, quote, trying to thwart his reputation of being a liar, a con, and a murderer, and to gain some friends, some money, and some influence for the future. He is held in a protective housing unit at Corcoran alongside Charles Manson, Philip Garrido, the kidnapper and rapist of J.C. Dugard, Mikhail Markasev, who killed Ennis Cosby, Bill Cosby's son, and Juan Corona, the serial killer who targeted and killed at least 25 migrant farm workers during the 1970s. Corona has given Yule guitar lessons. Dale Glee and Tiffany Yule are buried together in one plot at Belmont Memorial Park in Fresno, California. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks goes to Grant Mesher for his expertise in firearms and helping me with the research for this episode. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.